0: Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show, opening up the colonial wound. This is the U.S. Empire. They go around the world, setting the world on fire, murdering people and stealing their stuff. Pacifica host Garland Nixon is on the case.
1: Good evening. My name is Garland Nixon. Lots going on. Let me say this. Do you wonder why when I talk about what's going on in Gaza, that I say, I'm not shocked. I'm not surprised. A lot of people are like, oh, can you believe it? I'm like, can you believe it? I can't believe that I've been telling people, screaming and yelling on this radio for, uh, you know, 10 years now. And long before that, everywhere else that this is who these people are, this is what they do. This is the, um, what's the term I'm looking for? This is the lineage. This is the legacy of U.S. colonialism and U.S. imperialism. These are the people who enslaved black folks. And you know what's interesting about slavery, let me say this, a lot of people are like, well, at a certain time, year, they outlawed slavery. You know why uh, they outlawed bringing in new slaves? Right, uh, The U.S. said, that's it, no more bringing in new slaves, right? And a lot of people are like, well, I guess, you know, they were at least starting the reason that America stopped the outlawed bringing in new slaves, right? And if you remember, what the not only did the U.S. outlaw bring in new slaves, they sent an armada of ships across the Atlantic to block slave ships. So you couldn't bring, you couldn't get a ship full of slaves and bring them across to the United States because we had U.S. Navy ships stopping you from bringing any more slaves here. You think they did it out of the kindness of their heart? No, actually, let me explain to you why. If you have a commodity, if you have something such as a slave, if you flood the market with that commodity, the value of the commodity decreases, right? If you got something that you're selling, if you have whatever, and all of a sudden there's more of it in the market, right? Let's say they had 1 million slaves in America. If the ships bring in 3 million slaves, there's so there's so many slaves now that the value of the slaves you got, less, Slaves were very expensive. So the reason that they stopped the transatlantic slave trade, the reason that the U.S. sent its navy across off the coast of Africa to block those ships from coming over here with slaves— was to maintain a high value of the slaves they had. They had slaves, and the slaves were procreating, having babies, having more slaves. They were afraid that the value of slaves was going to decrease down to next to nothing. And if you're selling slaves, you don't want the value of slaves to go down. So the only reason that they outlawed bringing slaves here was to maintain the value of the slaves that they had. They slaughtered Native Americans. That's the legacy of America. So don't look at what's going on in Gaza like, I can't believe they're doing that. And, of course, there are those people who are Democrats who somehow thought they were somehow different from the Republicans. And I was like, did Democrats stand up and scream, if we're voting against uh, uh, overthrowing Libya, overthrowing uh, uh, Afghanistan, overthrowing Iraq country? Vietnam, did, uh, did the Democrats stand up against? No, no, no. And I say to people when they see what's going on in Gaza right now, it should open a colonial wound. Black people particularly should look at that and say, holy crap, that's what they did to us, ain't it? Yes, it is. And trust me, they would do it again if they got the opportunity, if they needed to, if there was money in it, if you got in the way. You know, I I have to look this up. Did you know that I believe it was in the late 1960s, some Democrats, they were Democrats. They went to the president. And they came up with a plan to use the military to block in black neighborhoods. This was, uh, I believe, after Martin Luther King um, died, was killed, and then um, then uh, they, you know, black people was freaking out, right? And they came up with a neighborhood. What they what they wanted to do, they came up with a plan, is they wanted to use the army and block off black neighborhoods. And that way, they could black people wouldn't be able to leave or come and freak out. So basically, they were going to do to black folks right here in America. They had a plan. To do to black folks right here in America, what the Israelis did to the Palestinians in Gaza, they had a plan, and if you think for one second they wouldn't bomb us and kill us you 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 then you're awful naive, you don't know who these people are. you don't know who these people are. The problem with people being shocked right now is that they didn't know what the American government was. They looked at Joe Biden, and those of us who said, man, do you know this dude hung around Eastman? He hung around Strong Thurman. These was, this was his clique. This was his crew. He was hanging around segregation. This man's a racist, and the Democratic Party loves him. Yeah, Joe Biden to the rescue, Joe Biden to the front, and we're like, uh, that ain't a good party for you, and it ain't neither party any good for you, but a party that puts old genocide Joe in charge, No. And people jump down my throat. Well, Garland, you know, there's Trumpity, Trump, 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 blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, you need to know your history here, bro. It ain't going to work out good for you. And now look, Joe Biden, a bunch of warmongers, lying They go around the world, and what do they say? Oh, we're going to, whatever, Ukraine, to look out for the Ukrainian people. Look at what's happening in Gaza. I've been telling you they overthrew the government of Ukraine. This has nothing to do with looking out for the Ukrainian people. Oh, well, Taiwan, we've got to bring democracy and look out. And I'm trying to tell people, you're being had. That ain't what they do. This is the U.S. empire. They go around the world, setting the world on fire, starting wars. They ain't the good guys they'll tell you Bashar al-Assad or Putin or Xi or whoever Saddam Hussein uh, uh uh, Gaddafi they'll tell you how they're the bad guys and they must be vanquished and killed and taken out and garland Nixon going to come on every Friday and I you know me I've been doing I've been saying you've been lied to you've been lied to let me ask you this which country excuse me which continent do you think has the um uh the most nations that are under US sanctions Africa. Is that shocking? Should that be shocking to anyone? Guess what else Africa has? The most black folk. It ain't an accident that the continent with the most black people has and the most natural resources has the most U.S. sanctions. They're over there to steal the natural resources. Africa is poor. Yes, it is. But it's poor for the same reason that somebody that just got bopped in the head and their wallet stolen is poor. It has the richest resources in the world and the U.S. and its criminal accomplices are stealing their stuff. And I've been saying that for I don't know how long, at least hopefully. People will look at what's going on in Gaza and they will wake up to what Malcolm X said. They will wake up to what I've been saying. You've been had, you've been took, you've been lied to, hoodwinked, bamboozled, misled, led astray. You've been lied into believing that your government is the good guys and they're going around the world trying to do good things. That your party, whichever party, you're with the Republicans, you're with the Democrats, that your party is better than the other party, different than the other party. They're going to look out for good stuff. And which party now is looking? You know what happened? A couple nights ago, a bunch of people went in front of the Democratic National Committee headquarters, led by rabbis, led by Jewish, peaceful, peace-loving people, to sit in front of there and to calmly and peacefully protest. You know what happened? Go online. You can find a video. The police came in there, beat the crap out of them, throwing people down steps. And they, these people weren't Republicans. These were Democrats feeling, I'm a Democrat. I got a right to go in front of the DNC headquarters and to protest because, hey, I'm a member of this party. You're a member of the party, all right. You are a member of, your, of the party. And they beat the police. Go online. You can find the video. Search for it. DNC police. Abuse them. They weren't doing anything. They were doing nothing. Right? They were. There was Jewish Voices for Peace was leading it. And what did they do? The police got over there. They pounded them. They kicked them. They literally grabbed people and threw them downstairs. Democrat. That's that's how they're looking out for their party. That's what they're going to do. I'm telling you. You've been had. They ain't looking out for you. They ain't standing up for nothing. All this crap about they're always flying a, a rainbow flag and putting on a um a Black Lives Matter mask and say they're looking out for the minorities and the gay people. They don't give a crap about the minorities and the gay people. They use them as human shields. They use them so they can say, I'm doing good for the black people or the whoever's is the gay people or whatever, so they can seem like they're good. And then they can go around the world and murder people and steal their stuff. And now the mask is off. You don't have to guess who they are anymore. This is genocide right in front of your face. If the Democratic Party and Republican Party together joining to commit a genocide against men, women and children, if that does not wake you up, nothing will. If that not only you're asleep, you're dead. You're not asleep. You're dead. If that don't wake you up, a genocide, people in the streets by the millions saying, man, wait a minute. Wait a minute. The Palestinians are living in a city with walls around it. They can't. They're not allowed to leave. They're not allowed to go anywhere. They have no way to defend themselves. And you're flying over them with 40 million dollar jets dropping bombs. They had an instance where the Israeli government says, yes, there's a Hamas leader in this particular town. One, they dropped the bombs. They killed 126 people, civilians, men, women, children, seniors, innocent people, trying to survive and live their life. They dropped bombs. They killed 126 people. And and, and when asked, hey, did you get the Hamas leader? And they're like, we're not really sure. So you killed 126 people supposedly to get one, which was a lie. And when did you get him? man? Eh, we don't know. They don't know, they don't care. And you know who else doesn't care? Joe Biden doesn't care. You know who else don't care? The same DNC that's sending their goons to beat the crap out of their own constituents. Look, you might remember this. when Bernie was running and he got the shaft, he went up to uh, the DNC headquarters. I mean, excuse me, a bunch of Bernie supporters went to the DNC headquarters and said, hey, Bernie's gotten the shaft and uh, we, you know, we don't think that's right. You know what the DNC, this was back like 2016. You know what they did? They sent out like coffee and donuts to the people. They gave the people coffee and donuts, talked to them a little bit. They went on a while. And I thought to myself, well, I'm not happy with the DNC, but that's a decent, decent thing to do. Pre-pre- they're your constituents. They're protesters. Hey, give them some coffee and donuts. Say thanks a lot for coming. Whatever. Goodbye. That was respectable. I, I may not even agree. I'm not even a Democrat. I don't like the party. But I can say that's a respectable thing to do. That was the Democrat. I think Donna Brazile or something was running it then. That ain't today's Democratic Party. You don't get coffee and donuts. You get beaten mercil- mercilessly, mercilessly, stomped on, and thrown down the stairs. That's who they are. You know why? You know why? You know why they do that? Because this is their mentality. Where else will you go? Their mentality is, you know what? You know why they beat the protesters? Here's what I gotta say. If after all this, you are gonna come back and vote for these people in November, you need to be beat. You need you're beating yourself. They do it because they look at it and then they say, "Where else will they go? Come November, we'll scare the GB Jesus out of them. Come November, hey, look, here's a picture of Trump. Oh my God, not Trump. That's right. Here's a picture of Trump. You gotta support us, but you just beat the crap out of us a month ago. Shut up, and we'll beat you again. Look, see this picture of Trump? Yeah, shut up and vote for us. See, they know that they got their constituents living in fear. They ain't going to go nowhere. And they'll point to the Congressional Black Ta- Caucus or some other Uncle Toms, and they'll say, look, you've got a black person. Things are looking good for you. You got a black person in charge. And these old Uncle Toms will shuffle right up to them and scream, keep on killing those uh, 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 Palestinians. And, and they're like, well, what are they going to do? You know what I always found interesting? Did they never do that to white people? They never say to white people, they never say this to white people. I don't know why you're what you're upset about. You've got a white guy who's a president. You've got white guys in the Senate. You got white guys in charge. What are you complaining about? You're represented by white guys. They never say that to white people, but they will say to black folks, hey, I don't know what you're complaining about. You got Kamala Harris in charge. Why is it that so-called so we're supposed to be happy just having some old Uncle Tom that's going to treat us worse than anybody else in charge? But white people don't have, they don't, they're not supposed to be, they, they're supposed to be able to differentiate between one white politician and another. But we're just supposed to be happy to have any black politician. I don't get that. But if we keep buying it, you know what? That's what they ought to do. As P.T. Barnum said, it's a crime against God and nature to allow a sucker to keep his money. But I don't think we're suckers anymore. I think black people and Jewish people and white people and Latino people are waking up to the reality that they've been had.
0: And coming up next on Arts Express, Grammy Hall of Famer, R&B legend, singer, songwriter Aaron Neville has done all that while surviving poverty, racism, addiction, and incarceration. Coming of age in the housing projects of New Orleans put all that journey of survival through his music into what he describes as his unique gumbo of sound. The Black and Choctaw Native American has now put all of that journey of survival into his just-released memoir, Tell It Like It Is, My Story. First Neville Reason excerpt from his memoir, then our conversation.
2: You know, I spent some long years running in the wrong direction, down a dark path. It took a combination of God, music, and four strong women to truly save my life. The first of those women was my mother, Amelia Landry Neville. She definitely was my first earth angel. She carried me in her womb. I was delivered to her and she nurtured me and suckled me to her breast. She raised me from birth to 17 years old. She showed me so much love all my life. I remember how safe I always felt with her. Mommy taught me all kinds of good things, like manners, respect. She taught me the golden rule. She made sure I went to school and to church. She always had a pleasant look on her face. If I had a boo-boo, she made it all better. If I ever had a problem, she was my problem solver. She always understood me, even when I went astray and I didn't understand myself. My mother turned me on to St. Jude, the patron saint of lost cases. Whenever I was in trouble, she brought me to St. Anne's Shrine in Treme, where we would both crawl up the stairs on our knees, saying a prayer on each step until we got to the statue of Jesus at the top. St. Jude has been watching out for me all my life, and I can thank God and mommy for that. Another strong, beautiful woman, who's been in my life since we were little kids, is my sister, Athelvra. We've been best friends since we lived in the Caliwood Projects. I believe she is one of my guardian angels. She's my younger sister, but she also helped to raise me by always being in my corner, having my back. I could do no wrong in her eyes. Athelvra was my laughing partner, my singing partner. Together, we learned the songs our parents played on a record player, the music RT, my oldest brother, brought home, and the music we heard on the radio. When I was 16, I met my next Earth Angel, Joelle Rue, who became my wife. She took care of me and watched over me for many, many years. She also kind of raised me. My son Ivan used to say, hey, Dad, you know, sometimes it's like you're one of the kids. I said, I felt the same way. Joelle was 4 feet 11 and a half, but she was a giant. No one messed with her. My trainer in New Orleans, a bodybuilder named Tassie Cologne, who had arms bigger than mine, once said, I'm scared of that little woman. Me and Joy had some ups and downs, that's for sure, but we loved each other through it all. She kept that little boy and me in check. I believe she also gave me a reason for wanting to live. Sarah Friedman, my present earth angel, came to New Orleans in 2008 to photograph the Neville brothers. And after the shoot, I asked her for her phone number. We started seeing each other and then we started seeing more of each other. Then we started falling in love. When I met Sarah, I was on a dangerous road. I know she saved my life in all kinds of ways, not just with her love. I'll tell you more about that later on. The other great constant in my life has been music. Singing was always the thing I loved the best. When I'm singing, that's when I'm happy, more than happy. Whenever I'm singing, I'm trying to connect with the angels in heaven. I can make the notes so soft and smooth that it would make an angel's wing flutter and definitely reach God's ears. One of my favorite things was ending the Neville Brothers shows with Amazing Grace, which was really a testimony of my life. When I had the audience hypnotized with the swirling notes that God let me be able to do, it was kind of a sacrament. The notes I had in my soul whenever I was singing, each one would go through my veins like some precious lava. No matter what I was singing, I could feel God in each note coming out of me. My voice was my salvation.
0: And aside from performing with his siblings, the Neville Brothers, and his Grammy Award-winning triple platinum duets with Linda Ronstadt, Aaron Neville has recorded the many sounds of one of his idols, Bob Dylan, and he'll tell us why in our conversation coming up.
3: They say everything can be replaced Yet every distance is not near So I remember every face Of every man who put me in See my light come shining, from the west down to the east. Any day now, any day now, I shall be released. Hello,
4: Prairie, how are you?
0: fine how are you hello and welcome to our show
4: oh thank you thanks for inviting me
0: okay cool (laughs) what led you to write your memoir tell it like it is my story which has been described as your personal story of overcoming poverty racism addiction incarceration and loss
4: well nobody could have written it but me because i was there on every page you know um uh and i wouldn't want to Like, sometimes people will pass on and somebody else will write a book about them and don't know all the details. I know every detail. So the lady that that helped me write it, Beth Edelman, she said, Erin, I want the book to be in your voice. And that's what she did, put it in my voice.
0: And how would you say your creative passion and your music have helped you survive and heal emotionally through your difficult years?
4: Well, I always call... When I'm singing, it's like medicine, you know. That's why I try to administer it to other people that I think could use it because it helped me through a lot of, uh, I call it the bowels of hell, really, Uh, you know, with the drugs and all that. But I always felt somebody was watching over me through all of it. And later I wrote a song called, He Took Who I Was and Where I Came From to Make Me Who I Am.
0: Now, you've recorded, as well, some Bob Dylan songs. What is it about Dylan and his music that inspired you to record his songs?
3: Because
4: he writes from the heart, you know, and the, if I can't feel a song, I, want, I don't want to do it. But I got turned on to Bob back in the 60s when they had the album about the times we are changing. And The God on Our Side was one of my favorite cuts off of that album, and Hollis Brown, I did those two with the Neville Brothers. I did about eight five dozen songs, really.
0: And what was uh, the experience like, the unique experience like, for you singing with Linda
4: Ronstadt? <laughs> it was the experience of my life, really. Like, uh, when I met her, she, she came to New Orleans in 84 at the World Fair, and me and my brothers were playing at Peach Fonds Club, and she was there with Nelson Riddle. She can. Uh, she dedicated a song to her and the call up on stage. She told the press later she said she don't really do usually do anything like imprompt like that without a rehearsal, but she wasn't gonna say no to Aaron Neville. And I asked for autograph. She said to Aaron Love, I'll sing with you anytime, anyplace, anywhere, and any place, anywhere, in any key. And um, the, the next year, my friend Alan Tucson, he and I was had a program called, uh, organization called New Orleans Artists Against Hunger and Homelessness. And we called uh, Linda and I, did a benefit with it since so she came down. And the first thing we did was sing together in our, Alan Tucson's studio with Ave Maria and Harmony. Mm. And our uh, manager, Peter Asher, said, wow, y'all should do a record together. And the rest is history.
0: All right, great. Okay, now what would you like people to understand about your music?
4: Well, that it's uh, music of the world. It's not just a, you know, sometimes people get pigeonholed. And while he sang R&B, I don't even know what R&B is, really. I sang, you know, uh, gospel, rock, pop, uh, country. I sang Ave Maria. I even sang uh, the Mickey Mouse March.
0: Mm. (laughs) (laughs) And what would you hope to convey to audiences with your memoir?
4: Well like I said, uh, my my life brought me through a lot of hills and valleys, ups and downs and ins and outs. And uh, I'm thankful that God was with me all that time and walked me through it. And uh, I just uh, hope they can get out of it to try to take the right road, listen to the inner voice, Uh, because the world can be ugly and it can be beautiful, so take the beautiful.
0: Now, one of the experiences that you survived was Hurricane Katrina. How do you feel that affected your life?
4: It affected big time. That was 2005. In 2004, my wife at the time, Joelle, was diagnosed with lung cancer. And I uh, told the doctor, you give her three months. She said, in other words, you give me a, a death sentence. You know, so that was 2004. Two thousand five, I was on the road, I told my family to meet me in Memphis and we were there Memphis was looking at the TV, was we planning on going on Monday. We watched the T V, saw the water come, no, we're not going on Monday. And realized that New Orleans most of it was underwater. And my house that I thought I'd be living in the rest of my life was ruined by ten feet of water for like, I don't know, two weeks the water was there. Mm. And milled and molded. Mold and mildew and all that stuff. So I never went back to that house, and I wound up living in Nashville after that. Hmm.
0: And how would you say your your from your background is New Orleans? How would you, what would you say is unique about New Orleans music?
4: It's a gumbo. It's a mixture of all different types from, from uh blues, rhythm, Caribbean, Italian. Uh, and uh, every ethnic you can think of is in in that gumbo in New Orleans, Creole and Cajun.
0: And is there anything else coming up for you musically or otherwise?
4: Um, not really. I'm, I'm just taking it easy right now. I'm uh, working the book and enjoying life mm. at eighty-two.
0: <laughs> and do you think you'll be writing any music?
4: You know, I'm always thinking, I, I write poetry, I don't really do oh. the music, and I have to be inspired, you know, I got a, I got a poetry book, I have a, a phone, my, I write on my phone, on my iPhone, I have an iPhone full of poetry. Mm-hmm.
0: And what is the name of the book?
4: Tell it, never tell it like it is, my story.
0: Oh, no, I mean, you said you wrote a poetry book.
4: No, oh, the name of the book that's out was called, uh, I Am a Song.
0: Oh, oh, okay. All right. Yeah. <laughs> and any last word about Tell It Like It Is, my story?
4: It is the most riv- riveting, wonderful, up-and-down, in-and-out trip you could ever take, reading my book and take my journey mm. along with me yeah. through the ups and downs and ins and outs.
0: Okay, well thank you so much, Aaron Neville, for calling into our show and I will get the word out about tell it like it is my story.
4: Well thank you and you have a great day.
0: You too, bye. Okay. This every man
3: needs protection. This every man must fall Yet I swear I see my reflection Some place so high above this wall I see my light come shining From the way Any day, day, I shall be released Now you understand a man, oh, in this lonely crowd He's a man who swears he's not to blame him shout so loud, crying out that he was afraid. I see my light come shining. Any day now, I shall be released.
0: Tell It Like It Is, My Story is published by Hatchet Books. And coming up next on the show.
5: She Outmaneuvers Biden in San Francisco by Pepe Escobar. On one side of the table, a global South leader at the top of his game. On the other side, a mummy selling the illusion he's the leader of the free world. Oh my God, it does exist.
2: Unleash the creature that we have feared for more than
3: 3,000 years. Is the bringer of death. He will never
5: stop. That was bound for a cliffhanger before, during, or after the crucial bilateral involving the world's two top powers. Already, during the introductory remarks, U.S. Secretary of State Tony Blinken, sitting on the right side of The Mummy was as terrified as James Stewart, afraid of heights in Hitchcock's vertigo. Sensing doom would dawn at any second.
1: Ah, It's a cinch. I look up, I look down. I look up,
5: I look... What was the strange attraction that brought these two together in spite of the dark forces that tore them apart? Then it did. At the final presser, Joe Biden, the actor playing the dummy, following a proverbial smirk said, Chinese President Xi Jinping is a dictator because he is the leader of a communist country. And then all those previous elaborate plans unraveled in a flash. A tentatively rosy scenario turned into a film noir.
3: Samuel Spade. Now, what can I do for you, Mr. Cairo? I'm trying to recover ornament that, uh, shall we see, has been mislaid. You're not hiring me to do any murders or burglaries, but simply to get it back.
5: The Chinese Foreign Ministry's response was as sharp as a Dashiell Hammett one liner.
1: The only chance I've got of catching them and tying them up and bringing them in is
3: by staying as far away as possible from you and the police because you'd only gum up the worst. Are you getting this all right, son, or am
1: I going too fast for you?
5: And contextualized, this was not only, quote, extremely wrong, but, quote, an irresponsible political manipulation. All of the above, of course, assumed the mummy knew where he was and what he was talking about off the cuff and not dictated by his ubiquitous earpiece. The hegemon was far from having a priceless Maltese falcon, the stuff dreams are made of, to offer Beijing.
1: Have you any conception? How much money can be got for that blackbird?
5: China is already solidified as the world's top trading economy. China is advancing at breakneck speed on the tech race, even under nasty U.S. sanctions. China is co-organizing with Russia the concerted drive towards multipolarity. The White House readout, as bland as it might seem, actually gives away the key part of the plot. Biden, actually his earpiece, underscored, quote, support for a free and open Indo-Pacific. What the readout does not say is that Biden's handlers also tried to convince the Chinese to stop buying oil from their strategic partner, Iran. That's not going to happen. There has been no direct U.S.-China confrontation yet, thanks to millenary Chinese diplomatic expertise and long-term vision. Beijing knows in detail how Washington is simultaneously in full hybrid war mode against the Belt and Road Initiative and BRICS. A Sino-American reporter asked Xi in Mandarin if he trusted Biden. The Chinese president perfectly understood the question, looked at her, and did not answer. That's a key plot twist. After all, she knew from the beginning he was talking to the handlers controlling an earpiece. Not by accident, last March, in a speech to Communist Party notables, she explicitly stated that the U.S. is engaged in, quote, comprehensive containment, encirclement, and suppression against us. And she's key takeaway in San Francisco, he said. Quote, there are two options for China and the U.S. in the era of global transformations unseen in a century. One is to enhance solidarity and cooperation and join hands to meet global challenges and promote global security and prosperity. And the other is to cling to the zero-sum mentality, provoke rivalry and confrontation, and drive the world towards turmoil and division. The two choices point to two different directions that will decide the future of humanity and planet Earth. That is as serious as it gets. She added context. China is not engaged in colonial plunder, is not interested in ideological confrontation, it does not export ideology, and it has no plans to surpass or replace the U.S. So the U.S. should not attempt to suppress or contain China. Biden's handlers may have told Xi that Washington still follows the one-China policy, even as it continues to weaponize Taiwan under the twisted logic that Beijing might invade. Xi once again provided the concise clincher, quote, China will eventually, inevitably, be reunified with Taiwan. Amid all the barely-concealed tension, relief in San Francisco came in the form of business. Everyone and his corporate neighbor, Microsoft, Citigroup, ExxonMobil, Apple, was dying to meet with leaders from several APEC nations, and especially from China. Hence, the sterling success of the business dinner at the Hyatt Regency, with tickets costing between $2,000 and $40,000 dollars. She was there to sell to investors not only China, but a great deal of Asia Pacific as well. One day after San Francisco, the heart of the action moved to Shanghai and a high level Russia China conference. That's the kind of meeting where the strategic partnership formulates paths ahead in the long march to multipolarity. In San Francisco, she made a point to stress that China respects the historical, cultural, and geographical position of the US, while hoping that the US would respect the path of socialism with Chinese characteristics. And here's where the film noir plot approaches the final shootout. What she hopes will never happen with Straussian neocon psychos running US foreign policy. And that was starkly confirmed by the mummy, aka Joe Dictator Biden. So much for real politic practitioner Joseph Soft Power Nye, one of the few realists that believe China and the US, like James Stewart and Kim Novak in Vertigo, need each other and should not be separated. Well, unfortunately, in Vertigo the heroine plunges into the void and dies. The specter from the past that drew her to the ancient headstone in the mission graveyard. The compulsion that drove her relentlessly to the point of no return. The story of a love so powerful it broke down all barriers between past and present, between life and death, between the golden girl in the dark tower and the tawdry redhead that he tried to remake in her image.
6: If I let you change me, will that do it? If I do what you tell me...
0: Jeremy Irons, and you're listening to Arts Express. My existence is a meaning that I'm trying to do a story deep inside all of us. From working-class origins in poverty and as a welder to transcending German cinema as a cultural icon, Werner Herzog is the subject of a new film,
6: Radical Dreamer. Hi, this is the UK Desk for Arts Express and my name is Brett Gregory. Over the past 60 years, Werner Herzog's extensive and elaborate filmography has explored both the grand and garish extremes of human experience, astonishing audiences all over the world with his breathtaking insight, innovation and industriousness. Suitably then, Thomas von Steinecker’s latest documentary, Werner Herzog, Radical Dreamer, is an intimate, informative and involving tribute to an auteur of the highest order, An individual who transcended his origins in the new German cinema movement in the 1960s to become the internationally recognised director, screenwriter, documentarian, author, actor and cultural icon that he is today. That's me.
3: That's my landscape.
5: He has searched every corner of the world and collected some of the most rapturous dreams.
2: Werner's work makes things possible that would not otherwise be possible.
0: There's something about him that is so, um,
6: hypnotic. Moving a ship across a mountain. Uh, what? That's fresh. That's Werner Herzog. Stones are raining from the sky. They tumble. Wer hat das schon geschafft, dass er seinen ureigenen Akzent erfunden hat, den die Welt auch
0: mag und nachmacht und komisch findet?
1: Well, I believe that
2: he could eat his shoe.
0: That sounds like it probably is true. Is it true? Er inszeniert das Event, alle Leute auf das Floß und dann runter den Fluss. Let's see what happens. It was life. You know, it's like you bit into like an exquisitely sour and sweet fruit that you never tasted before. That's it.
5: There was one difficulty after the other lack of money, technical problems, we had two plane crashes. I live my life, or I end my life with this project. My existence has a meaning when I'm trying to do a, a story where I know it is deep inside all of us. I just try to remain a good soldier. I mean, a good soldier of cinema.
3: don't want to know where
6: it comes from. Indeed, as Wim Wenders, the esteemed German director of such classics as The American Friend, Paris, Texas and Wings of Desire, observes, quote, Herzog is a mythological character, a lonesome rider. Both his fictional and factual works frequently pursue protagonists who are driven by destiny whatever the cost to themselves or to those around them, often along an uncertain and even irrational timeline, as well as almost always against the backdrop of nature's savage indifference. His overarching narrative mission as a storyteller is not necessarily to reach a specific goal or resolution, however. Rather, it is to witness and capture images along the way which human beings like you and me may never have encountered before. In turn, over the duration of a film, or maybe even over the duration of a lifetime, these visions will eventually cohere with our perceptions, reflections and imaginations to form an unforgettable ecstasy of illumination. The trail of conquistadors and tribal slaves snaking down a Peruvian mountainside at the beginning of Aguera, Wrath of God from 1972 The 320 ton steamboat literally being dragged across dry land by way of primitive levers and pulleys during the production of Fitzcarraldo in 1981. The solitary penguin who is compelled to abandon its colony in Antarctica and wander 5,000 miles to certain death in Encounters at the End of the World from 2007. As the late US film critic Roger Ebert reminded us, Werner Herzog. Quote, has never created a single film that is compromised or uninteresting. Even his failures are spectacular. While von Steinacker's documentary is peppered with A-list personalities such as Christian Bale, Nicole Kidman and Robert Pattinson proffering their praises, accompanied by various clips from previous documentaries such as Burden of Dreams from 1982 and My Best Fiend from 1999 to provide historical context, it is the up-close and personal biographical contributions which make you lean forward. Original interviews with Herzog himself, as well as with his brothers, Tilbert and Lucky, together with his former wife, Marcia Groman, and his current wife, Lena, are fresh, genuine and quite thrilling, cinephilic moments. Abandoned by their father, we learn of the Bavarian village of Sakharang, where Herzog and his brothers grew up in poverty during the 1950s and early 60s their highly educated mother only able to afford a single loaf of bread between the four of them each week. In turn, we follow them as they eventually move to find employment opportunities in the city of Munich. And here, Tilbert tells us, Herzog first worked as a welder at a steel factory, investing his wages in producing short films such as Last Words and Precautions Against Fanatics. Winning 10,000 German marks in a screenplay competition, however, was what truly set Herzog on his way, since, in 1968, it provided him, at the age of 25, with the financial means to write, direct and release his first feature, Signs of Life. The film, shot by his long-standing cinematographer Thomas Mauch, centres on three German soldiers who lose their minds on the Greek island of Kos during World War II. It caught the attention of the influential German film historian Lottie Eisner, who, after informing her close friend Fritz Lang of its significance, introduced it to an array of prominent film critics in France. As a result, Signs of Life went on to win the Silver Bear Extraordinary Jury Prize at the 18th Berlin International Film Festival. Arguably, Werner Herzog's subsequent fictional work enjoyed its vertex over the 1970s and 80s, with a succession of five films which forced Hollywood and the international cultural intelligentsia at large to critically countenance previously unthinkable levels of moviemaking, which were altogether historic, operatic, raw and real. Furthermore, such a death-defying approach to cinema's mechanics and aesthetics was also illumined incredibly, as well as overshadowed deeply by Herzog's singular collaboration with the incendiary German film and theatre actor Klaus Kinski. The star of Aguera, Wrath of God, Wojciech, Nosferatu, The Vampire, Fitzcarraldo and Cobra Verdi was diagnosed with an antisocial personality disorder in 1950, and he attempted suicide twice in 1955. It is of little surprise, then, that, during lengthy, soul-sapping shoots in the punishing jungles of Peru, Ghana, Brazil and Colombia, Kinski would often explode with preternatural fury, physically destroying set designs, verbally abusing crew members, threatening their livelihoods, while also promising, in the same breath, to murder his director. As Thomas Mauch comments, Kinski, who died of a sudden heart attack in 1991 at the age of 65, Quote, was only interested in himself. He only cared about creating as much turmoil as he could. He did that to make every gesture seem godlike. Herzog finally turned his back on Germany in 1996 and moved to Los Angeles. His brother, Lucky, who is also his producer, informs us that this was because not only were his siblings' films no longer being funded, but, quote, he was done with the whole system, with all the bureaucracy behind it, with all the smug, narrow-mindedness. Fortunately, taking flight in such a manner carried the filmmaker to a continent which coursed with creativity, collaboration and conviction. And, as a result, his filmmaking career became revitalised as his work ethic and productivity increased at a staggering rate. That is to say, over the last 27 years, Werner Herzog has directed eight original feature films, including Rescue Dawn with Christian Bale and Bad Lieutenant with Nicolas Cage. Seventeen documentary features, such as Grizzly Man and Cave of Forgotten Dreams, an eight-episode miniseries about Death Row, and, if this wasn't enough, he has also acted in a number of high-profile feature films and television shows, like Harmony Corinne's Julian Donkey Boy, Tom Cruise's Jack Reacher, The Simpsons, and, more recently, The Mandalorian. And let us not forget that he has magically found the time, energy, focus and finance to direct 19 operas as well. Ultimately, Werner Herzog is a polymathic phenomenon, a quasi-religious visionary born out of the 20th century who sings and sweats cinema, literature, theatre and opera, and who, at 81 years of age, is still showing no signs of stopping. Consequently, the only real criticism one can direct towards von Steinacker's superbly orchestrated documentary is that, with a running time of 90 minutes, it simply isn't long enough. Werner Herzog's Radical Dreamer will be available from December 5th and in the UK from January 19th, 2024. This has been the UK Desk for Arts Express and I've been Brett Gregory. Cheers.
0: And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at the Goddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station. Mm-hmm.